Welcome to D.A.R.E., the show for innovators, entrepreneurs, and startup leaders who dare to shape the future. Your hosts today are Ned Hayes and Cecilia Mariani. D.A.R.E. is brought to you by Darwaf, the superpower tech team that can make your vision a reality. The D.A.R.E. podcast is happy to welcome Dr. Amit Shukla to the show today. Amit is the Dean of the College of Science and Engineering at Seattle University. Uh, This STEM-focused college within the university is the fastest growing part um, with uh, over 100 faculty members in eight departments. Dr. Shukla has also created a new center for science and innovation for a student body of over 1,300 students focused on STEM. So we're really excited to hear his vision today for higher education and the social relevance of technology and entrepreneurship in the Pacific Northwest. So welcome, Amit. Thank you, Ned. Thank you for the kind introduction. I'm delighted to be here and talk about Seattle University, talk about Seattle University's College of Science and Engineering and all the exciting things we are doing for our students and our community. So welcome to the show, Amit. We are also delighted to have you here. Could you tell us about what you are doing at Seattle University? seems like a really great time for innovation in higher education. Yeah, thank you, Cecilia. Uh, You know, Seattle University is a gem of Pacific Northwest. We are a national university, which was founded over 130 years ago, and we have a long history of educating leaders for a just and humane world. So within that mission-aligned way, what we are doing is expanding our footprint on how we educate future leaders through a perspective of a STEM-based education, STEM-based programs, both at the undergraduate level, which is where uh, our strengths are. Uh, It's a primarily undergraduate institution, but we are also expanding to graduate and more professional fields where they are changing so fast that the innovation lies in adapting to what the industry is doing. And being in Seattle allows us uh, that opportunity. Got it. Um, So you've also been at Seattle University pretty recently, and things have really expanded there. So how has Seattle University been changing to accommodate these big changing initiatives? Well, Annette, uh, you know, so first of all, you know, we are all deeply committed to our mission, uh, which is to educate future leaders uh, for a just and human world and also uh, to educate the whole person. And within that lens, what Seattle University's College of Science and Engineering is doing is reflecting on our strengths, which is, you know, close faculty, student interaction, learning by doing, engaging with community, Uh, industry, foundations, other partners, local community, national community. And within that lens, we are collectively brainstorming what does that future look like? Because our perspective is that Seattle University could be a national model for others to follow. Having a college of science and engineering together and being the size we are and growing and being located in Seattle provides us those uh, you know, secret sauce, the the right recipe, the right mix to create something innovative where folks from other parts of the nation could follow us. 
Yeah, it seems that you mentioned that the location in Seattle is important. And can you tell us about what a successful science and, and engineering programs looks like? Yeah, Cecilia, thank you. So, you know, success of any higher education institution is really, and it should be, measured by the success of our graduates. Uh, our graduates are very successful leaders at many of the Fortune 500 companies. You know, uh, if you think about Pacific Northwest, you think about Greater Seattle, uh, there are a lot of uh, very impactful businesses which call Seattle home or Greater Seattle area home. You can start with Boeing, but of course, uh, mention Packer, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and all the other range of companies. So one example is that any at any of these industries, tech, manufacturing, any field you pick, you know, Fred Hutch and so on, we have our alums who are leading the way. And that is to me the truest marker of success. Another thing which I would mention is that our project center, which really is our front end to interact with our industry partners and bring real world problems for our students to solve while they are in our curriculum, has been in operation for over 37 years. That's really the crown jewel of our operations. And many people want to capture that essence uh, at their and different institutions. We have been so successful because of our industry partners. You know, we have completed over 944 projects from those industry partners. And our students have done the work. There are patents associated with it. There are actual products associated with it. But that to me is an example of what success looks like for science and engineering. Okay, so tell us more about the impactful business you mentioned. What kind of engagement has been done with these uh, industry partners? What does the relationships look like between CITU and local technology companies like Microsoft, Amazon, or Google? who are based in the Seattle area? Well, uh, the relationship, uh, of course, is multi-pronged and deep with all of the above. So you can pick any of those partners we have been talking about. And there are many, not just the seven, but it, you know, the list is quite long. Um, and it also includes not only the tech industry, but also foundations and nonprofits and government agencies. And the partnership looks like this, you know, some partners interact with us uh, by recruiting our students for internships and full-time employment. Some partners in, interact with us by conducting research projects with us. Some partners uh, interact with us by actually offering what we call senior capstone through that project center, which I just described. And others uh, come to campus to recruit uh, students for various opportunities. But many of these partners who have been working with us for over you know, 50 years have been also investing in our facilities. So for example, uh, we have our project center space was endowed by PACAR. It's called Pro PACAR Innovation Center. And, and that is a partnership. That is a partnership which is grounded in a long-time relationship. But that's just an example. And there are so many more. So 
partnership is both ways. You know, of course, our students are benefiting from these relationships, but also these uh, enterprises are benefiting from what our students are doing on campus and also post-graduation when they uh, go out and work for those employers. Many of these employers have hundreds of our alum working for them because folks who come to Seattle University come from entire nation, I mean, including Hawaii and Alaska, but they stay mostly in Pacific Northwest. So we have a very strong, attractive pool in the region, and that's dictated by the dynamic ecosystem we have around us. Wow, that's great to hear. So along with the ecosystem of the technology and the Pacific Northwest, you also have the Catholic ecosystem. I mean, Catholic heritage is really important at Seattle University. It's a Jesuit school. And the Jesuits, you know, were early explorers. There have even been multiple science fiction books about Jesuit explorers who go to other planets. So do you have any thoughts about kind of the Catholic or Jesuit urge to explore and change the world? Does that influence your STEM curriculum there? Oh, for sure. You know, so Seattle University is the most uh, innovative, progressive Jesuit Catholic institution. And let me talk a little bit about all of those. We have a core curriculum, which every student undertakes, and that is grounded in our Jesuit pedagogy, Jesuit philosophy. So students, uh, including the students in science and engineering, students have to think about their experiences, their context, think about ethics, how does it impact humanity, any action they are taking, and how do they take care of the planet, take care of our home, but also take care of the people. So that is already built in into the central core of our educational enterprise. Everything we do, not just the core curriculum, but everything we do is guided by the Jesuit and Ignatian pedagogy principles of reflection and then you know acting based on those reflections exercises. Science and engineering is no different. I mean, science and engineering is really about solving big problems. And as we know already, uh, you know, science and engineering is truly a global and multidisciplinary enterprise, which makes it even more suitable for those Jesuit and Ignatian pedagogy principles to think about how would it impact a person either in the east side of Seattle or all the way across the world in Central Africa. We are providing our students avenues so that they can reflect, they can discern, but they can also be empathetic to other voices, be good team players and support so that we can enhance the quality of life for all of us uh, and take care of our planet. So within that umbrella, our brand of uh, education is really guided by the Ignatian pedagogy. Our students, and like many students these days are driven by purpose. And, and that helps because they are already asking the questions. So all we have to do is guide them through the experiences and partner with them in their educational journey. And it's wonderful to have a collaborative 27 Jesuit school in the nation, uh, which uh, share best practices, share concerns and share solutions. So it's a good good model to have that uh, collaborative environment, but we are fully committed to those principles of Jesuit and Ignatian pedagogy. I would add, lastly speaking, Seattle University is a unique institution 
among all those Jesuit Catholic institutions because we are located in Seattle. We are also the most uh, innovative and progressive institution. As an example, you know, we are the only institution which has fully divested from fossil fuels. And that was uh, recently accomplished. We are also the most socioeconomically diverse campus in Pacific Northwest. Wow, good to know all that. Well, you know that I live in Cordoba, Argentina, and also here in Cordoba, we have a, a lot of influence of, of Jesuits and our and in our universities also. So, well, changing a little bit the topic, one big question that has been at the top of everyone's discussion list is AI. How is artificial intelligence changing education for you, um, for your students? Well, this is so so relevant and timely. And, you know, again, I keep going back to this statement, we are Seattle's university, we are in Seattle, and that changes everything. So early on in this year, uh, we hosted a ethics and technology conference where we invited industry leaders, we invited advisor to the Pope, and we invited thought leaders to brainstorm, what does it mean to have these emerging technologies of you know, generative AI, of machine learning, and of what some might call general intelligence. And how do we really think about ethical way of interacting with them? So that's where we started, but that's not all. What we have also capitalized on that we have to embrace the ever-changing nature of technology. We have to embrace, and our community is ready to embrace. So. All the students, faculty, and staff are engaged in the discussion. We invite external thought leaders at a regular interval. Just yesterday, we had a person from Microsoft come and talk about prompt engineering. Personally, I did not even know that term six months ago. But now we are talking about what does that mean and how can students be ready for those careers, which will be there when they graduate in a few years or in a few quarters. All I want to say is we are fully engaged. We are committed to fundamental principles of good liberal education. And that does not change. The thought process of critically acting and reflecting and research does not change. The tools are changing. So the generative AI and all these tools allow us to be more productive. But the question still has to be asked by the learner, by us humans, you know, is it the right thing to do or is it the correct information? Is it making us better human beings, making us better as a society? And that's really what the education is all about. So AI is changing education for sure, but in some sense, it's really not changing and emphasizing the true principles of higher education, which is to develop leaders, develop young people into thought leaders so that they can help, you know, make the world a better place. Right. So, so I even have an idea that AI might take over all of the kind of easy technical tasks of software engineering and, and might lead to an era where the humanities, you know, rise again, because currently AI can't write a good novel and can't really create the kind of, uh, creative output that, that actual human beings can do, but AI can certainly code. So what do you think of that hypothesis? Do, do, do you see STEM programs integrating more classical humanities uh, experiences? 
So Ned, I think that's a very interesting question. You know, first, let me say this. I am an eternal optimist when it comes to technology. Now, many people may not agree to that perspective, but I believe, you know, I'm the first one to sign up for that next generation, whatever. So having said that, education is really about problem solving and creating opportunities for our young people so that and all people who engage with the higher education system so that they can think critically, collaborate with others, be empathetic, have a reflective action. You know, that is to me what real education looks like. Now, if we look at future or, you know, it's a very big risk, but if we try to predict what's happening in future, you know, these problems which we are seeing would actually be... Uh, inherently multidisciplinary you know think about we we are in pacific northwest so we have to think about climate change it requires all hands on deck it requires a diversity of thought it requires diversity of background it requires diversity of solutions so to to make that happen ai can help us or this generative ai and other such tools can help us be more productive but they don't take away from the fact that you know, we have to talk to an economist. We have to talk as a technologist to a an artist. To, we have to communicate to a marketing team. We have to all come together. So the way I would rephrase this is we will need new skills in how we interact with technology, but the fundamental principles of what makes a higher education valuable does not change. So to go now to the question you were asking, you know, AI... Yes, software engineering, you know, is the first group which might be affected, but AI will actually, or these generative tools and other tools will actually impact all disciplines. So every discipline will have to evolve and come up with a way to work with technology. I think that's where we will learn. It's almost like when the first touch screen came about, you know, we had to learn how to use that. It, it's the same, it's, it's a way of interacting with knowledge more than anything else. So humanities are critical to higher education. We need people, and I say this with full sincerity, you know, uh, the climate is such that everyone wants to study STEM majors, but the problems which we are trying to solve cannot be just solved from a technical lens. Problems need political lens, problems need economic lens, problem needs, you know, teamwork. So we all really need to get together and work on these. And maybe this allows us to communicate easily among different disciplines. So, and speaking of AI in the future, what kind of jobs do you think future students will have after they leave college? As you mentioned, roles like prompt engineering didn't exist three years ago. So what new roles will exist for your students in the future? Yeah, I think uh, this is a hard one. I mean, I, I think, you know, there is always going to be a role for STEM majors because we live inherently in a highly digital, highly technology-infused society. What they do as a mechanical engineer or, the, or as a computer engineer might change. So, for example, you know, I, I go back to when I was a student, that was a few decades ago, uh, we used to use you know, drawing boards. We, we used to create drawings and then, you know, literally buy 
you know, at the end of the day, we had these big sheets of paper which would have our designs and, and a lot of uh, those skills were really transformed even as I was going through college in the four year span back in India. And by the time I was graduating, we all had to learn, you know, computer interfaces for the same task. It's the same idea here. Yes, there will be new roles, we can call them different names, but the idea that a STEM major would go in with the perspective of you know, design thinking, with the perspective of working in teams, and with the perspective of solving problems, which inherently require many people to come to the table and have a dialogue will not change. So the jobs which folks will have will be still that, and they will be more purpose-driven. So for example, you know, all of our civil engineering students here are, you know, employed right away. And the reason is that we have such an infrastructure which needs uh, revamping, which needs to be made sustainable. And there is a shortage of folks studying civil engineering. There is a shortage of folks who actually study civil engineering and also understand computer science. So maybe the, the jobs of the future will be at the intersection of these dis different disciplines where a person who understand technology, but also understand say uh, creative writing would be much more uh, ready for the future. Right, so you just mentioned purpose-driven work. And I know that you actually have a background in that. When you were at Miami University, you, you led the Miami University Center for Assistive Technology that identified social problems and developed engineering solutions. So I'd love to hear more about what that center was about. Oh, thanks, that, that definitely brings back uh, good memories. So yeah, before starting in this role at Seattle University, I was at uh, uh, Miami University for almost 22 years. And uh, there, what we also recognize that young people are driven by purpose. So, this center which I established was really a brainchild of my students, and they get the full credit. They came to us many, many times saying, you know, we want to do this problem. Can you help us? We want to solve this challenge, which we are facing in the community or someone they know as facing in the community. So we listened to them. We used to provide, you know, some kind of opportunity for research experience or project-based learning experience. But then we organized it in a way that it became a center for assistive technology. The idea for that center was to do use-inspired research. And let me give you an example. So we had many programs. We still do. They are expanding on that. But when I was there, we would ask students, what problem do you wish to solve under an umbrella of themes? So let's say the theme was assistive technology. And it's a very broad brush of things. A group of students came to us and said, well, we really just want to modify the wheelchair. Okay, so, so that's fair. You know, it's within the constraints and we would then ask probing questions like, what do you mean? Why? And, and then the story emerges. You know, this, there was this one student who had a sister who was basically wheelchair bound and their family was having trouble taking care of her. So he designed a modification to the wheelchair which then could easily assist the person to lift out of the wheelchair, go to bed and come back to wheelchair and sit down. And that was a very simple fix, but it was use inspired and it changed the life of one individual. It enhanced the quality of life for one individual, but also enhanced the quality of care, which his 
their family was having to provide. So those were the kinds of problems. This is just one example, but to be honest, my most favorite one, because I know the family and you know they were immediately impacted. Now, what happens after that is that this was also an opportunity to do some IP around it. Uh, there was uh, a discussion before I left how this can be a option for all wheelchair manufacturers to provide to the customer. But then, you know, I moved to Seattle University and where we are, are trying to reimagine what our students are excited about and how can we provide that innovation opportunity through youth-inspired research and problem solving. And hence, we have started talking about how to infuse innovation in our work not just in the classroom, but also outside. Yeah, and any plans to engage with social issues in the same way they're in Seattle? Yeah, and I mean, we already do. So for example, you know, the project center, which we mentioned, also sponsors projects from local community. And many of the times those projects come from minority-owned businesses. We have a center for sustainability, which is, of course, talking about the big question of climate change and sustainable processes there. So lots of exciting opportunities here in Seattle. You know, the wonderful thing about being in Seattle is that we can truly show other primarily undergraduate institutions and other places how to collaborate with our community. It's it's really, truly an honor to, to serve in this role. Well, and I'd like to ask about your own areas of study also. Online, we discovered that you are an expert in robot and human interaction, that you study nonlinear dynamics. Please tell us about your research. This sounds very interesting. Oh, thank you, Cecilia. Yeah, so my background is, as you said, in uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by training, but my PhD was on the topic of nonlinear systems, so nonlinear dynamics. It's a study of uh, systems which don't behave the way you would expect them to. And we worked on many projects. And you know, one example I'll share, uh, this might make sense here for this audience. We were working to help doctors decide between doing deep brain surgery or prescribing a medication for Parkinson's patient. So let me say it again, because this is kind of an unusual topic, but I'll relate it back to nonlinear dynamics. We were working in collaboration with Cincinnati Hospital to figure out if a patient who is experiencing Parkinson's should be given a deep brain surgery or should be given medication. And this is a very simple exercise because the data they have is what we would call a nonlinear data. And we can use some of the tools and techniques from nonlinear dynamics to make a recommendation. Of course, medical professionals still have their practice and their experience to make the decision, but we were trying to provide a tool to doctors to, to sort of sort out some clarity before they make the final call. And it was a great partnership. This was, again, something which I feel very proud of to be involved in a very small way. But now we have a tool which that hospital uses for that classification. That is the kind of 
human robot interaction plus nonlinear dynamics projects I was working on and I have the background to work on. Thanks for the insight into that, Amit. So here's a big question. What's the future of technology? Where do you see the tech field going in five to 10 years? Everything changes, but maybe you can uh, look into the crystal ball for us. Oh, wow, Ned. I thought this was supposed to be softball questions. But if we are talking about predicting the future, you know, no bets. But here is what I think. You know, the role of humans has to be central. Whatever the technology might be, we will need to also think about what are the guardrails and who's asking the question. Because at the scale we are at, it's so hard for any one person to promise or even attempt to control after the fact. So I think while technology will continue to grow, we might be you know, in the mainframe type of situation with generative AI and who knows what will happen in five years, but we need to think now and think hard about what is the role of human in this growth, in this application, in this future. And that's where Seattle University is really poised and positioned to take the lead. So we are establishing Center for Ethics and Technology. I mean, we have a we have a Center for Ethics and Technology, but we are expanding that to include all those conversations. I already mentioned we hosted a conference earlier on this topic, and we hope to, we are working to expand that engagement with local community and national community and so on. So technology is going to grow, its impact is going to grow, but we need leaders who can think about how that's going to help us and what guardrails do we need. And that's where the power of broad liberal education at institutions such as Seattle U is really impactful. Thank you. And final important question. Our podcast is about people who dare to dream. What do you dare to dream, Amit? What future do you dare to imagine you are creating at Seattle University? Thank you, Sylvia. You know, Seattle University is a truly unique place because of our faculty, because of our staff, and because of our students. We are looking forward to a collaborative vision where we can show others how STEM education should be. And that's my dream. And I will hope to have a chance to come back and report on it in a few years. Thank you. <laughs> Makes sense. Thank you so much for your time, Amit. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ned. Thank you, Cecilia, for this opportunity. Thanks to our guests today for their great insights on DARE, the podcast for innovators, entrepreneurs, and startup leaders. If you'd like your story to be featured on DARE, just contact us at info at darwaft.com. DARE is brought to you by Darwaft, the tech team that can make your vision a reality.